I'm out in these streets, no mask. People give me sidelong looks. Go fuck yourself. Stay home. If you're that concerned, stay the fuck home. Don't bring your snotty, ill-begotten kids out and, and about, out and about to get empanadas and popsicles. These streets belong to me now. The outdoors, the outside world is hostile to you. There's tigers out here. Tiny, microscopic little tigers that want to devour your lungs. Your vanilla American way of life. Shit's over. Shit's getting spicy out here. I'm out in these streets with no mask because I like it spicy. The latest study suggests that even if you have the antibodies for COVID, they only last about three months. Does that mean you can get infected again? Who knows? Nobody knows. Nobody knows shit. Should you wear a thin piece of cloth over your mouth and nose? That's up to you. You do what you want. But don't judge me because I choose to exercise my immune system. If the antibodies fade that fast, then I want constant and continual exposure. I want to force my body to keep producing antibodies. Who the fuck are you to tell me I can't work out? My white blood cells are doing fucking squats right now. Yours are lazy little fat fats. Running around, wearing your mask. Your immune system sucks. What about the at-risk people? The high-risk people? You're endangering them, Patrick. You're a selfish piece of shit. Maybe. Maybe I'm selfish. Maybe they can wear a mask. We both have to wear masks? Why? Why do we both have to wear masks? What is a mask? A mask is... Personal protective equipment. Personal protective equipment. That's the first P in PPE. It protects me, not you. A mask protects me from your disgusting little droplets when you sneeze. Your foul, loathsome little droplets. If I wear a mask and then I feel the need to sneeze. I'm not gonna sneeze into my own mask. That's fucking disgusting. Are you sneeze into my own mask, catch all my little droplets, and then I just gotta keep walking while I'm wearing the mask, this slimy, wet, moist, humid sneeze mask? Get the fuck out of here. I got to sneeze. I'm taking the mask off. I'm not going to sneeze into my own mask and then keep wearing it. I'll put it this way. If you want to fuck, but you don't want to get an STD, what do you do? You wear a condom. Both people don't wear condoms. One person wears the condom. Usually the guy. It's possible for the girl to wear one. I mean, I think, do they still make female condoms? I've only seen one once. It was kind of like a joke back in the 90s. I don't know if they still make them. I don't think they took off. <laughs> I've had sex with women 
at their place and they pull out condoms they own, but not condoms for them, condoms for me. Like, I wear it. Never, ever have I had a sexual partner pull out a female vaginal condom thing. It's never happened. It's always for me. And I'll wear it. Or really, I just would bring my own because, you know, I like I like the brand. Back when I was sleeping around before I was in a monogamous relationship, I had a particular type of condom that I liked. So I would bring that because other brands sucked. That was a personal item. That was a personal protective item for me. So I didn't get an STD from the lovely, wholesome women that I used to have sex with. You know, a precaution. We didn't both wear condoms. I wore it so I didn't get anything from her. And she would have me wear it so she didn't get anything from me. It was a safety feeling kind of thing, which is really what the masks are. The masks, the masks, I guess wearing a mask makes you feel like the world's a little bit safer for you, but it's not. Maybe it is. I'm not saying the masks don't work, but it's for you. You want to feel safe. You wear the mask. Don't fucking try to try to gaze shame me <laughs> with your beady little eyes because I'm not wearing a mask when I'm out on the street. If I choose to wear a mask, it's for me. I don't wear a mask for you. If you're concerned that you may have an STD and you don't want to give it to someone, you don't wear a condom. You don't engage in fucking. Does that make sense? I don't know. Both people don't wear the condom. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> One person wears the condom. Here we go. If you, if you think or you know that you've got the clap and you don't want to give the clap to someone else, you don't wear a condom and then fuck the people anyway, trusting that the condom is going to keep the other person safe from your dirty, disgusting penis. You just don't fuck for a while until you don't have the clap anymore. You stay home. You do not engage. You don't engage in fucking. You stay the fuck home. Do not engage. If you think that you may have corona even though you're not showing symptoms, you don't leave the house. You don't wear a mask and say, hey, I'm safe. I'm not going to give it to anybody. You do not engage. In life, you stay the fuck home, order your groceries in for a while. But I have to get groceries. You don't have to get groceries. Most of you can stand to miss a few meals, you fat fucks. And I'll, look, I'll wear a mask in the store. Indoors, in public, I'll put the fucking mask on. I'm not a monster, all right? This is a com this is comedy podcast. Did, did I... I hope this is clear. <laughs> I have a, 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 kid, a couple congenital social disorders. One is being unapproachable. I think the first time someone called me unapproachable, I was seven years old. Also, another one is I have a uh, mm, sarcastic tone even when I'm not trying to be sarcastic. So it can be confusing. People don't know whether to take me seriously or not. Generally, you don't have to take me serious. Generally, I'm not being serious. I, oh, 
rarely mean what I say. But I rarely don't mean what I say either. I don't know. I confuse myself. Anyway, most of you can stand to miss a fucking couple meals. And I'm not a monster. (laughs) Those are the two important things to take away. Stop eating so goddamn much. And I'm not a monster. But outside, on the street, I'm going to breathe the free, unfiltered, microscopic tiger-filled air. Because I got to get my squats in, bitch. My little white blood cells got to get their fucking squats in. And I know you're scared. You're a scared, anxious little bunny. And you want to feel like you can impose some sort of control over your existence. Over the dangers that are out there in the world. It's natural. It's the human condition. But you don't have control. And you never will. The universe is completely and totally apathetic to your fears and desires. It doesn't give two shits whether you and your children live or die. Your feelings are meaningless. Everyone everyone say it with me. My, yeah, really? We're going to go. My feelings are meaningless. This is the first tenet of existentialism. The universe does not care. And that's how I like to live my life, really. Like whenever I think I'm being treated unfairly, I didn't get that job I wanted, I didn't get that promotion, I'm not getting enough stage time, I don't complain. I don't complain that nobody wants to hear mediocre white dudes anymore. Nobody wants to hear anybody anymore. People only want to hear themselves. That's really this big push for diversity. It's not that people want to hear more diverse voices. It's that people want to hear their own voices. So it's not, hey, we want to put this trans-Asian lesbian on TV because I'm a trans-Asian lesbian, and I want to hear that voice. It's, I'm a trans-Asian lesbian. You don't have enough of me on TV, so put me on TV. I never think, hey, we need more bald muscly, alt-right-looking white dudes on TV. Because I don't want to hear that shit. (laughs) If I did say that, what I would really mean is like, oh no, you need to put me on TV. You need to put me on TV. Get that trans-Asian lesbian the fuck out of here and put me on TV. That's what the push for diversity really is. And that is existentialism. On a human scale, not only does the universe not care, nobody cares about you. Your feelings are meaningless. Let's say it together again. My feelings are meaningless. And I personally, I take a lot of comfort in that. Most people find it scary, but you shouldn't. Universal apathy is comforting because it's impersonal. The universe doesn't care. None of your friends and family care. So yes, nobody or and nothing is rooting for me. Nobody's on my side. Nobody's propping me up. Nobody's pushing me along. But also, they're not actively rooting against me either. There's no grand conspiracy keeping me out of things. So I can pretty much do whatever I want in life, unfettered by anything except the laws of physics. I find that comforting. 
And I really, I don't want anybody's help. I don't want the universe to be on my side in helping me because then that diminishes any accomplishments that I happen to make, that I happen to achieve. Now, the second tenet of existentialism, the first is nothing and nobody gives a shit. The second tenet is that given that the universe gives zero fucks, everyone should come together and take care of each other. Isn't that nice? It's a nice idea. That's a, it's an idea I agree with. That sounds pretty great. In essence, there's no God looking out for us. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean there is no God. Existentialism is not atheism. It's even if you do believe in a God, God does not look out for you. God's not on your side. Nowhere in the Bible or the Torah or the Quran does God help anyone. He punishes a lot of people. There's a lot of a lot of punishment going on. Have I studied all of these religions? No. No. I I I've kind of gleaned a bare bones gist of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Quran. But in my 44 years of reading little bits here and there and hearing other people extrapolate on what different portions of these books mean, what I've gotten from this is that you're pretty much on your own. You're pretty much on your own. God is not handing out free gift cards, free Amazon gift cards to give everybody a leg up. God basically doesn't give a shit. Occasionally, he'll stir his finger in the pot and rile things up. He'll kick over the anthill and watch us all scramble around, try to rebuild everything. He's not really helping us. Not really giving us much of an explanation of what we're supposed to be doing on this earth. But while you're trying to figure out this thing called existence, you better not fuck up. Do not fuck up while you're engaging in this test called life that you never got to study for. Don't fuck it up. If you do, you're going to hell. Except for the Jews. From what I understand, Jews don't have a hell. Or a heaven, really. They just have Israel. I I guess Israel is their version of heaven on earth or something. I don't really understand the deal with Israel or why we're supposed to care or not care. But anyway, I'm not getting into that. <laughs> Existentialism is the universe gives zero fucks and whether you not whether or not you believe there is a grand design we should help each other out as people. So then why the fuck don't I wear a mask? That's a great question. It seems like you know, I like this idea of existentialism. It's a very human philosophy. We should all help each other out. We should all be wearing masks. Slow the spread of this thing. Why don't I wear a mask when I'm walking down the street? Because I don't feel like it. It's fucking stupid. Really, it's a it's a bitch move. I'm not going to give Corona to anybody when I'm outside. And also, there's too many of us. There's too many people. I've seen two of the Avenger movies. I don't really understand what they're about. I've never really been a fan of 
superhero movies. I didn't read comics as a kid. My preferred uh, indulgence in nerddom, in nerd culture, was like Dungeons and Dragons fantasy shit. And some Star Trek. I'm a big... I, I like the Star Trek Next Generation. I didn't care about superheroes and comic books and shit like that. I think because... I don't lust after buff dudes in spandex. That's kind of why I never really got into sports either. I I don't understand as like as a straight kid why I was supposed to deify buff dudes in tight clothes. I was supposed to get excited for the real or fictional accomplishments of muscly dudes wearing tight pants. I liked girls. I always liked girls. You know, Wonder Woman's hot, I guess, but she was never naked. She always had too many clothes, so I'm not going to read a Wonder Woman comic. Also, I never really had a... never understood the idea of a hero, like a... like a... Uh, like I'm going to worship a sports figure. I don't understand why everyone's fascinated with like Michael Jordan. He threw a ball in a hoop. I don't, that's not, I mean, I can't do it. I can't play basketball for shit. I played a year of little league basketball. I could never learn how to dribble the ball without looking at my hand. <laughs> I'm not saying I could do what Michael Jordan does. I definitely couldn't, but I also didn't care. That kind of has to do with the comic books too. I don't. I don't. Fucking Superman's boring. He's a Boy Scout. He's not interesting. I find you know when I did watch uh, a superhero movie, I I always empathize with the villains. Usually, I did like Iron Man, the Iron Man movies, but that was just because they were funny. I didn't really care about the suit and the special effects and all that. I just liked the the witty dialogue. Because Robert Downey Jr. is great. So I like that. So I watched, I think I watched two of the Avenger movies. Because, uh, you know, the Iron Man guy was in them. I'm like, oh, I'll watch that. No, I think I watched them both on a plane. Also, I watched the newer Spider-Man on the plane. And that was a good movie. It was funny. I didn't care about his stupid spider powers. But the kid was funny and awkward. And Michael Keaton was great. And I really, I really liked... Michael Keaton's bad guy character because he wasn't a bad guy. The Michael Keaton villain was like a working class hero. Like if I remember the the movie correctly, there was there's this stupid metal, this alien metal alloy, I don't know, and it's supposed to be like a big technological game changer. And then this massive spaceship or something crashes into new york and it puts a lot of people out of work you know a lot of blue collar working class guys out of work and you know they're probably trump supporters but what what are you gonna do with like blue collar white dudes it's like no one no one's looking out for them and you know if one guy promises that he's gonna help them out they they got a a drowning man grabs whatever he can (laughs) So yeah, maybe maybe Michael Keaton and his boys are Trump supporters, but like no one else was looking out for them. Nancy Pelosi wasn't looking out for them. Hillary Clinton wasn't like looking out for for their unions or anything like that. So maybe they had to vote for Trump. But also, none of these superheroes were looking out for them. None of these cool, flashy Hollywood superheroes. You know, all these guys, these guys just wanted to go in and salvage what they could of all the debris, you know, when New York was devastated by some massive alien spaceship crashing into it, they wanted to salvage some of this like fancy alien metal, you know, cause they were all out of work and no, you can't do that. Captain America comes and tells you that you can't salvage this metal that fell out of the sky. You're not authorized. So, 
what's a working man going to do? He's going to break the law a little bit. Who the fuck who the fuck elected Captain America King of New York? Fuck that guy. Fuck Captain America. He's he's juiced up on steroids and he hides behind a shield. And he he's the American hero. Fuck that guy. I was really rooting for Michael Keaton. That was a great character. So I didn't get the I didn't get the Avengers. Uh, there's lots of dumb characters. I don't understand who they are or how they relate to each other. The scenes with Iron Man were funny. That's all I know. <laughs> and then I think it was the second to last Avengers I watched where the big fucking Thanos guy, the guy who was the older brother in the Goonies, where he disintegrates half of humanity. And and I get it. Thanos is kind of, he's doing what needs to be done. He's doing what probably needs to happen to humanity. Half of us have to go. And he's the bad guy. We're like, we're just crawling like vermin all over this planet and fucking it up. And eventually climate change is really just going to ravage the earth. And then Thanos says, hey. I'm going to have to scale you guys back a bit. You know, just half of you have to go. And he's not Hitler. He didn't say certain subsets of humanity has to go. He didn't say there's portions of humanity that are really undesirable and they have to go. He just said half of everyone in total has to go. And that seems completely fair and equitable to me, right? Isn't that what we're going for as progressives? Equity? I mean, half of everyone on the world just falls apart. Seems pretty equitable to me. Pretty fair. Like when Michael Moore and Bill Gates talk about overpopulation, they get called Hitler on the Twittersphere. You know, and that's unfair. I would call them Thanos. I don't think any of them specifically said, like, all Africans have to go. Like, as far as I can tell, like, Bill Gates is actively trying to save as many Africans as he can. He's vaccinating everybody. Maybe he thinks only white people have to go. I'm cool with that, too. I'm not advocating genocide. (laughs) Did I mention that this is a comedy show and nobody should take myself seriously? I mean, you don't have to find it funny. I know that's a big ask. That might be asking too much. But also, you don't have to take anything seriously. I'm not advocating genocide. I'm just proposing banning masks outside and getting back to nature. There we go. Let's get back to nature. Nature would like to murder an indeterminate number of us. We don't know how many. We're kind of projecting by October 180,000 of us, which in the grand scheme of things, you know, we're talking 7 billion people. That's really nothing. Nature wants some of us to go. Who are we to argue? Who are we to say... Here's a question. Who are we to say that COVID has to die? Like, why do we deserve to live, but this virus doesn't? Some mask-wearing vegan is going to give me shit for eating pot roast? Meanwhile... They are actively trying to exterminate a new and flourishing life form. A virus has less right to life than a cow. I'm not trying to exterminate cows. I want cows. I want cows to stick around so I can eat them. I mean, it seems pretty, I guess ethnocentric is not the right word. Species-centric? 
to like try to wipe this particular virus off the earth. I mean, we let so many other viruses stick around like malaria. Malaria has been killing people at COVID numbers for a couple thousand years. Yeah, actually, oh yeah, there was a little gene therapy in the news where they might be able to cure sickle cell anemia. Sickle cell anemia is an evolutionary adaptation to combat malaria. So because your red blood cells become like sickle-shaped instead of the, the regular disc-shaped, somehow that makes it harder for malaria to get a hold in your body. The downside is that it also makes your blood clot way too much. So your life expectancy is shortened significantly. But, I mean, if it saves you from malaria, it actually lengthens your life expectancy. It's a tricky thing. It's kind of like a, you know... This is why I can kind of say with confidence, there's no such thing as intelligent design. <laughs> Evolution is just action-reaction, and not every reaction is the best solution. Sickle anemia was the, the DNA's response to malaria, and it was an okay response. I mean, given that you're not going to die of malaria right away, but... You know, the cure is not as bad as the disease, but it's pretty bad. But now, with some CRISPR technology, we might be able to get rid of sickle cell anemia pretty soon. Now, and I mean, and I've, I find this is fair because it's not killing malaria, it's not saying, hey, malaria. You've been being a dick lately. We're just going to wipe you off the planet. No, malaria is still going to be around. That doesn't make any sense what I'm saying. I, I realize this. I realize this. The shaming. The shaming with the mask is great. And how masks are political is also great. When really, we can't just have a little bit of common sense. On the largely deserted sidewalks, I'm walking around with no mask. You're going to give me a dirty look? Like, you're the one. You're the one on a fucking scooter with no helmet wearing a mask. Get the fuck you're zipping through, running red lights on your little bird scooter with no helmet, but you're wearing a mask. Fuck yourself. Go fuck yourself. Indoors, yeah, wear the mask. Should restaurants be open? Probably not. But, you know, we've got... Who's to tell us if we're not willing to risk it? And it's kind of a bullshit it's a real bullshit response to say you're putting other people in danger. Not if they don't leave the house. We're supposed to tiptoe, tiptoe around on eggshells? Because some people might get sick and die? A tiny, tiny number? I don't know. I don't know. I don't have the answers. But... Don't wear a mask and then think that makes you a good person. That's really what it's about. It's all these little liberals, and I'm a liberal, all these fucking quote-unquote bleeding-heart liberals wearing a mask thinking they're a good person because they're not going to get anybody sick. The mask isn't for other people. The mask is for you, bitch. And if someone is particularly at risk, they shouldn't be outside anyway. That's their decision to go outside. And that's a choice people have to make. Hey, it's dangerous out there. But I need to eat. Life is all about risk management. And you got to take a risk. You can mitigate that risk by wearing a mask. But the mask is for you. The mask is not.
for other people. And you know, I'll say if if I got COVID and was seriously debilitated, I won't take up a hospital bed. I'll die at home. I'm cool with that too. I'll die in place. <laughs> like I got told in the army a couple times. <laughs> Not real life in training. No one ever told me that in real life. Oh, I might shoot them in the face. When you're bought, when you tell your uh, your radio in to your your command center, and you say, "Hey, we got a uh, we got a lot of enemy forces rolling up over this ridge. What should we do?" And then your command tells you to die in place. <laughs> you're like, "This is a training scenario. You are not inspiring confidence." for us to go to war <laughs> you're just going to tell me to die in place <sighs> anyway this is comedy I mean what the fuck else am I going to talk about no one's leaving the house nothing really that interesting is happening protests are low, seem pretty much over corona's boring the news keeps trying to make us stay excited about it but you know we're bored you're bored, and when you're bored and you don't have a lot of contact with the outside world, you start thinking crazy thoughts. It's like being on a desert island, just trying to stay rational. Mm. Or we could talk about, I don't know, Chris D'Elia. <laughs> but who cares? Who cares about Chris D'Elia? Uh, yeah, let's do, let's do story time. Mm. All right, oh, let's talk about a vaccine. It kind of reminds me, uh, first time I had anthrax vaccinations, uh, which was 97, 98, end of 97, this was my first deployment to the Middle East. I was, how the fuck old was I? I was 21. Um, and I got sent as a linguist slash translator to a parachute infantry company for the 82nd Airborne Division with 2nd Battalion, 504th Infantry, White Devils, that was, uh, that was their little motto, they had 1st, 2nd, 3rd Battalion, they were the Red, White, Blue Devils, if I remember correctly, um, and this was a whole other world to me, so I joined the Army as, like, a nerdy, intelligence, like, linguist kid, um, and that part of the military is pretty split evenly gender wise. Uh, I think there might've been actually slightly more women. So it's, you know, as far as the army is concerned, the army is generally kind of a conservative organization. Um, but anywhere where there's a lot of women, it was especially uh, PC for the Army. Um, not, of course, this is PC in the 90s, not PC now, where I don't know what the fuck you call shit now, you know. There was not a whole lot of shaming going on. There was no social media, so there was no shaming. But, um, you know, relatively PC... Vaguely, I wouldn't say feminist because most of the women, I don't know if they would describe themselves as feminists because that's really kind of an upper class educated thing, even though we're all like military intelligence and most of us, you know, spoke one or more foreign languages. We were all still like, we all still came from the working class. We were just smart kids who couldn't afford to go to college. Um, 
So, I don't know. In my experience, like a, a whole feminism, a feminism debate, that that's not for blue collar motherfuckers. Um, it doesn't really trickle down that far. It's mostly corporate shit, from what I can tell. Um, so I don't know if these women consider them feminists, but they were definitely, you know, they weren't also like girly girls, really, most of them. Um, so, you know, most of the women were pretty assertive. They didn't worry about not getting things because of their gender. Yeah, it was, yeah, they were pretty much just like the dudes, except they had vagines. Um, and some were really great. Some were pieces of shit, just like the dudes. So I went from this world to the real, real army to the, the kind of army you see in the fucking movies, the kind, you know, like full metal jacket army, even though they were Marines, but you get what I'm talking about. I went to a parachute infantry company, all dudes, nary a, nary a snatch to be found. Mostly these were just young, skinny, 19-year-old alcoholic kids who all really wanted to shoot somebody. They were all parachute infantry, meaning they all jumped out of planes. I had not yet been to jump school. So I was uh, I was a leg. That's what that's what you call pussy ass motherfuckers who've never jumped out of a plane. We call them legs. So I show up, I'm a leg. I'm not combat arms. I'm what they call a uh like some people call it a smart guy. Uh other people call it a a saw for MOS. So MOS is your military occupational specialty if I remember. So that's your job in the, in the army. So if you're infantry, your MOS was 11 Bravo. Um, when I joined my MOS was a 98 golf. It's all, it's numbers followed by a letter. And I think they change them occasionally. I don't even know if my particular designation exists anymore. It's probably got a different number by now. Um, so the MOS, they would call it hard and soft. So there were hard MOSs, which was like a combat arms MOS, basically infantry. Um, and then there were soft MOSs, like mine. If you were a smart guy, you generally didn't join the infantry. Although some of those guys are really smart. There's one kid who was like, who did three years in Harvard, went on Jeopardy, uh, lost in final Jeopardy, but I guess was winning the whole thing. Yeah. You get a mix of people. Um, so I was a soft skill MOS. Although I was particularly fit, I could run. And uh, so as soon as I demonstrated that I could keep up on the runs, when a lot of the infantry kids would fall out because, you know, they were alcoholics, <laughs> nobody really gave me much shit after that for being a leg. I fit in pretty well. And I loved it. I'm like, this is the army I wanted to join. This dirty, disgusting, sexist, racist military. And I mean, racist as in like, all all the races shitting on each other. Um, not racist, racist. Maybe it was, I don't know. Who can tell? I'm white. I don't even know if I'm being racist or not. Um, you know, white fragility. <laughs> So, and I'm going to Saudi with them because they're going to guard, they have a six month mission to guard Patriot missile batteries in Saudi. And then while I was there, we ended up, I ended up going to Saudi, Dahran and Kuwait because when you know a language, everybody wants you. Um, so while I was there, I had my first anthrax vaccinations. Um, and the anthrax vaccination was interesting. Maybe COVID might be like this. So you kind of think of like a flu shot, you get one and you're done. I have a feeling, uh, if a COVID vaccination does come out, it's, it's going to be a long drawn out series. So when I got the anthrax vaccination, this is how it worked. You would get one and then a week later you'd get another one. And then two weeks later you'd get another one. And then four weeks later, you get another one. And then eight weeks later, you get another one. 
and then 16 weeks later, so on and so on until you've done a year of these anthrax vaccinations. And then every year you need another booster. So for the whole remaining time I was in the army, which I got out in 2003, so about the next five, six years, I was getting their anthrax vaccination every year. And if this COVID shit is as slippery as it's they're making it out to be, try getting, try developing the administrative and logistical infrastructure to give 350, 375 million people this kind of series of vaccinations. Like that just occurred, this is just occurring to me now. And that's kind of staggering to me. Somehow the military makes it, you know, the army made it work because the army just one big bureaucracy and soldiers do what you're told. You're told to get your vaccination. You go get your vaccination. There's no, you're told to wear a mask. You're all wearing a mask pretty much. I mean, you can kind of dissent here and there. I remember when I was in regular army, you'd wear your helmet. The chin strap was disgusting. So nobody wants to wear the chin strap. So you just kind of let it dangle down because it itches and then it makes you break out. And then, but you all have to look the same. Everybody has to be uniform. So your fucking first sergeants are running around yelling at you for not wearing your chin strap. Probably, they're probably making all the army kids wear masks now. Because even though the army's a, a uh, or the military in general is, is a kind of a conservative institution, there's no dissent. There's no being a free spirit when it comes to wearing shit like that like everyone wear your mask everyone's gonna wear your mask and when nobody's looking they, they'll pull the mask down but their sergeants are probably gonna be on them to wear the masks um yeah so you're told to get a shot you get a shot you're told your dental point you are getting a checkup and a cleaning once a year maybe twice a year and if you don't go and they tell you when your appointment is. It's not like, oh, I need to make an appointment. You, They make your appointment for you. And you go <laughs> when the appointment is. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're not fucking around with two shit. They don't want you to be on deployment and then your tooth is killing you and, killing you and you can't do your mission. No, you, you're getting your regular checkups and your cleanings. So if you're getting a vaccination, they're like, hey, you got to go get your vaccination. It's not, hey, I don't believe in vaccines. You can not believe it at all you want. You're still getting it. Um, so I think within the first year, that's 10 vaccinations. No, I had 10 total. So it's not 10 in the first year. Maybe I had 11 total. I just had to whip out my shot record a, a month or two ago from my job. So I had to dig through like all my old files I never look at and find, you know, 30 years worth of vaccinations or 40 years. I found one from my childhood. And, uh, you know, I have like four or five of those little yellow booklets all filled out, all the crazy shit I've had vaccinations for. Anthrax is not the craziest. Um, so, oh, and the first three vaccinations I got, six months later, they were recalled by the FDA. <laughs> I don't know why they were recalled. They just told us those vaccinations had been recalled. And my response was, they're in me. <laughs> what do you mean they're recalled? <laughs> the motherfuckers are in me. You're not getting it back. What the fuck are you shooting me up with? Um, so, and then, so this was a six-month deployment. Um, and pretty early on, I somehow managed to not get in trouble for it even though I was kind of the middleman but we we came very close to prostituting one of our own soldiers to a Saudi military police officer who had really taken a shine to this young sweet blonde boy from Alabama or Mississippi or wherever the fuck he was from um, so my job there, especially initially, this was in Saudi. We were right outside Dahran, which, uh, is in Saudi. It's on the East coast of Saudi. Um, it's kind of close to Bahrain. Most people probably don't know about Bahrain. Bahrain is its own separate little island country 
off the coast of Saudi in the Persian Gulf. Um, I think Dahran is the closest major city in Saudi to Bahrain. Um, so we're basically, we're holed up in this, it's a Saudi base we kind of took over, they gave to us uh, for the purpose of housing these Patriot missile batteries. Um, and this was back when we were trying to contain Saddam. So Saddam's one big sensational weapon that was wildly ineffective were his Scud missiles. These kind of fire and forget, never really hit what the fuck they're aiming at. That was really the only way his army could do any kind of damage to us at all. And the media really took up on it. Like, oh, he might put chemical weapons. He might put biological weapons. He might put anthrax on these Scud missiles, which is why... You know, they made us take these vaccinations. Really, in retrospect, I think the vaccinations were some sort of, like, military-industrial complex thing. Like, somebody was going to make a lot of money providing all these unnecessary vaccines to American soldiers, so they got the contract for it. And then 30,000 people in Oregon kept their jobs or some shit like that really i was i i was on the front lines of the military industrial complex and saw a lot of silly useless shit just for what for keeping unemployment rates low and then i had to be injected with faulty anthrax (laughs) so some motherfucker could could send his kid to harvard um so where was that? Oh yeah, Scud missiles. And oh, so we're basically we're just guarding this Patriot missile battery from '90s terrorists or whoever. Al Qaeda was a thing back then. Nobody heard of them yet, except for you know if you were in the military, kind of knew who. Me especially uh, in my job field, you knew who Al Qaeda was. They were kind of small players at the time. Um, this was right around the time they had hit the uh, Kobar Towers. And uh, later on, the USS Cole in Yemen. Um, so, yeah, so I had to work at the front gate. And really, my most of my job the first couple months was to take the, the IDs from all the third country nationals who came to do work on the base. So third country nationals, so we're in Saudi... Saudis and Kuwaitis don't do any work themselves. They hire out. So they import people. Usually they were Bangladeshis, Indians, Pakistanis, and Filipinos. But there were a few from some other countries too. Um, And these are just workers. They're just basic. They're like coolies, like old school, you know, in the 1800s. And all through Asia, they had these just Chinese coolies that do man i don't know is coolie a slur who knows everything's a slur now um so these are just you know these guys are just a long tradition of manual indentured servitude basically they're fucking slaves and it was really kind of a shame and that was kind of my first experience or the first time i was thinking what the fuck are we doing like we're in this country trying to protect this oil for these rich fucking Saudis who don't do a goddamn thing, who can't even keep the, their, their own lights on in their own country because they're just functionally inept. And then we're hiring out and profiting from slave labor. And then I didn't understand. So these, and it's not like these are slaves or they're whipping them. Um, it's more... They offer these guys jobs from these poor developing countries, uh, India, Pakistan, you know, Filipino, lots of Filipinos. Um, And then they come to Saudi. They're promised, you know, decent paying jobs, I guess, for what they would get in their own countries, if they could even get jobs in their own countries. And then... Once they're in Saudi and Kuwait and all these other Gulf countries, Dubai does it too, Abu Dhabi, all these fucking places, UAE, they will take away their passports so they can't leave the country, pay them 
if they're lucky, half of what they were promised. And then they house them in these fucking slums. And these guys are just stuck here. And the whole idea, the whole reason they came there was like to make some money and send it back to their families. And then they really get fucked. And, you know, we profited from this labor because they'd come in, they do the plumbing, they do the electricity. Like some of these guys had like real, real skills, like real man skills. You know, they can fix a truck and shit. Um, they can rewire a house. Some of them were just digging ditches. <laughs> some of them had no skills. So my job was to take these guys' IDs and hold on to them while they're on the base because we had to like search each of them individually with like metal detectors and, uh, you know, bomb sniffing equipment. We had a couple bomb dogs there who would sniff, you know, they just run around sniffing these guys. And some of them would, you know, try to bring parts of bombs on the base. That was the move. You bring individual lego pieces of an explosive device onto the base and then once they're all on the base someone on the base could assemble it and then detonate it that was the move so we did catch a few guys trying to bring some shit in whether they knew what they were bringing in was not who knows um i kind of think they were mostly just dupes or they were just offered some money and decided to take it i hold no grudges Uh, we didn't get blown up while we were there. So, you know, no harm, no foul. Um, so my job was to take these guys' IDs and just make sure, you know, they were who they said they were, then they get on the base. And then right next to us, there was, you know, there was a little guard shack and a couple of the Saudi military police would be there. And one of these guys loved boys, And it was kind of amazing. This was my first experience, you know, in the Middle East. Kind of amazing how kind of open they were to fucking boys, which I had heard of. I didn't quite believe it, but once I got there, it was fucking true. Not all of them. (laughs) Not even most of them. Most of them were not into fucking boys, but some of them were. And it wasn't like, it was kind of treated like, like if we're in liberal D.C., Someone says they're gay. It's not a big deal. Not that I'm saying it should be a big deal, and I'm not trying to equate being gay with being a pedophile. Um, But how we don't think it's a big deal, they didn't think that was a big deal. They they were just like, yeah, he's, you know, he's kind of weird. Likes little boys. And the move was like these guys would go into Bahrain. Bahrain mostly had whorehouses, so I... There was a bridge from Dahran to Bahrain. I don't know. It's like their Golden Gate Bridge or something. Bahrain's another country. Bahrain, it was legal to drink and gamble and have prostitution. In Saudi, it was not. Bahrain, it was legal there because they ran out of oil and they needed income. (laughs) So they quickly legalized all that and they kind of became the, the Vegas of the area. And this was before, uh, Dubai, and uh, Abu Dhabi really took off and became like the, the hot spots of Middle Eastern tourism. Uh, back then, I think Bahrain was more in that vein uh, because they ran out of oil. They had no more income, so they had to become Vegas. So some of these uh, Saudi military police guys, they would drive into Bahrain on the weekend, go to the whorehouses, drink, gamble. And then come back and repent. <laughs> and I guess some of these whorehouses had boys in them. And so one of these guys was really, he kept asking me about this kid. Let's call him Foster. Because <laughs> I think, you know, every, once every three days, it was his, his squad's rotation to be at the front gate. And uh, pretty soon this one Saudi... MP was always there on the day that Foster was there. <laughs> and I mentioned this to Foster's squad leader, who, uh, his name was Cameron. Um, and some of these guys were a fucking trip. Cameron was like, he was, he was this staff sergeant, E6. He would just kind of sit there while his, uh, his little troopies would be standing, guard, guarding the gate. 
Cameron would sit there. He was probably like 24, 25. I was pretty young. He might have been, you know, late 20s. And then he would just say random shit like, I always wanted to rape a girl, but then you have to kill her, you know, because she's going to talk and you got to go to jail. So, yeah. Or then he'd say something like, I always wanted to kill a baby. (laughs) Just say shit to be outrageous. And you don't know if he was, you don't know if he was serious. <laughs> and he wasn't the only one. A lot of these guys were like that. Their fucking captain was like that. This, this, uh, infantry captain was crazy. Um, the first one was crazy. The pat, the pastor, the, uh, oh, I'm forgetting. What do we call, uh, the, the chaplain? Yeah. The chaplain, you know, this guy who's supposed to come around and make sure everybody's right with the Lord would come around talking about how hot girls' asses were. <laughs> like These fucking infantry guys were crazy. And I loved it. It was completely different worlds than I had come from. And that's kind of what led me to... Uh, actually, there I re-enlisted. I wanted to go to Special Forces because I was like, oh, I didn't know this shit existed in real life. I got to hang out in this world a little more because it was totally different. For, even though I grew up, my parents in the Army, but they were in intelligence too. And that's just kind of a different more professional. It's actually kind of a corporate world that I really didn't like. Like some of the work was interesting, but the, the, you know, just the internal office politics of military intelligence people, it's just real kind of sleazy and gross. Uh, and I knew quickly, quickly, like there's no way that I want to stay in this world and go to the NSA or CIA or something later on. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm going to get dirty. I'm going to jump out of planes. I'm going to get dirty. I want to eat some snakes. I want to hang out with these fucking psychopaths because they were fun. They were fun and they were crazy. So Cameron, squad leader, I mentioned that uh, one of the Saudi military police had taken a shine to little Foster. It's a little cute, adorable blonde Foster. Um, and I remember I, I was kind of hesitant. I wasn't sure how Cameron would take it. Cause a lot of these get, most of these guys were pretty homophobic. Um, but Sergeant Cameron, he perked up right away and he's like, how much is it worth? He's like, ask him, how much is it worth to him? <laughs> so, uh, oh yeah. Cause the, the Saudi MP guy who like Foster, he comes over and he's asking me about Foster. Um, and so I'm there, I'm like with these American soldiers and then this one Saudi guy and uh, he's talking to me in Arabic. I'm talking back to him in Arabic. And then, uh, Sergeant Cameron asked me like, like, why does he keep coming over here? And then I've just decided to be like, well, fuck it. I think, uh, let me explain the situation. (laughs) I'm like, well, he really is taking a shine to foster. And Cameron's like, no. I'm like, yeah, he, uh, he likes them. And then, so I start translating between the Sergeant Cameron and the Saudi MP. I don't remember his name. Um, yeah, I don't remember what his name was. It wasn't Abdulaziz. That was another guy who was pretty cool. And it wasn't, there was some guy who told us to call him a Rambo, (laughs) some Saudi guy. I guess he drove driven a cab in New York for two years and he spoke English, but nobody can understand his English because he spoke English with Arabic grammar <laughs> and I could understand it, but most other people couldn't. They just heard a string of English words in not the proper order um, because he didn't know how to, how to create proper syntax in English, but he knew he had some vocabulary. Most of you just said motherfucker a lot. Um, and he wanted everybody to call him Rambo. But, uh, so this guy, I don't remember the, the pedophile, the Saudi pedophile's name, (laughs) or I guess Foster was of age. He was at least 18, maybe 19. So, uh, he just looked particularly young. (laughs) He looked like a sweet boy of 15. Um, so Sergeant Cameron is like, what do you mean he likes Foster? And then what the Saudi tells me, it, it, he, oh no, he asked, he, he asked him like, well, 
he asked me if the Saudi liked Sergeant Cameron. So Sergeant Cameron is like, well, does he like me? And then the Saudi goes, no, 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 no. Anton Sadiqi. Anton Sadiqi. We're like in Hua Habibi. Which means you're my friend. He's my bitch, basically. Roughly translated. You, Sergeant Cameron, you're my friend. We're buddies. But that foster kid, he's going to be my bitch. It's basically what he said in Arabic. So Sergeant Cameron was like, all right, let's say, let's let's start the bidding at $2,000. <laughs> so I'm translating this kind of auction. Sergeant Cameron is auctioning off one of his own squad members to get fucked by this Saudi. And then it's a good time. It's super fun. Foster is taking it surprisingly well. He's just kind of smiling the whole time. All these kids were little savage murderers. So even though Foster looked like sweet and timid, I'm sure he was thinking, yeah, we're going to take this guy's money and I'm going to stab him in the throat. <laughs> like, so I don't think Foster would have been the victim here um, in retrospect. Uh, Foster, I don't think he was going to let himself get taken advantage of. <laughs> he was like, oh, 2000. So then Foster and uh, Sergeant Cameron started negotiating the cut. You know, Cameron wanted 50 50. Foster was like, no, no, Sarge. Like, I'm doing the work. I'm getting at least 80%. <laughs> and it proceeded on like this. And then it was all fun and games. It was a good time. The Saudi thought we were serious, which was the most hilarious part. And then uh, the next day, I come back to the front gate again. And um, word about the exchange has gotten up to, to our commanders. And now Foster was no longer allowed to go to the front gate. <laughs> he, had, he had to stay inside the base and perform whatever duties there because it was too much of a temptation to those poor, horny Saudi dudes. Foster was the sexiest man in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> <laughs>